If you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 11. When we left Jesus last time, he was standing in a graveyard. How long do you think Jesus stands in graveyards? It is, this is one of the most absolutely thunderous chapters of the Bible because it's a picture of everything, everything that God has for us. This is a picture of what it is. There is a graveyard full of dead people, and Jesus was called to the graveyard. And so we're going to see that he's met with the family that he loves, and the person that he loves is in that grave, and, and let's see what happens. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up slightly to verse 20, so we're in, we're in chapter 11, just a bit back into last week, and then we're going to move through the chapter. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha to, to the Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever you will ask of God, God will uh, give it to thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And what, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believe thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came um, and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha had met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, and comforted her, when they saw that Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth to the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was coming to Jesus, she saw him and fell down at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, comes to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay on it. And Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he has been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not to thee, if you would believe that you should see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and feet with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith to them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen these things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, that that the whole nation perish not. And this he spake not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but he went into a country near unto the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out into the country up into Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think you? Will he not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, that he, they should show it that they may take him. May God add his blessing to the public reading of his word. Can you see? Can you see what this chapter is? This chapter is raising Lazarus from the dead, and it's a parable. Jesus is, is doing a picture that everybody is able to see, and he's doing it publicly. He's, he, he went, he's talking to the, the ladies, but there's a crowd around them. This is a public event, and it's a parable of spiritual life. Your life is a picture of life, and your death is a picture of death. It's not life and it's not death. It is a picture of real life and real death. And Jesus, Jesus is raising a man from the dead publicly. And yes, it, it shows that we will be raised from the dead. It shows his power. It shows everything about him. It shows that he's God. But it's showing what God's true purpose is. And that is that he came to us in our death and raises us from our death. It's a picture of life. It's a public evidence of the truth that he's just said. He said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And this is an evidence that I am the resurrection and life. If I say that I am light, he's proved it by, by reforming eyes of a boy that had never seen ever before. He showed that he was light. And he said, I am resurrection. And he's showing that by taking a dead man and bringing him back from the dead. He is the Lord of physical life, and he's the Lord of spiritual life. So this idea of proof, that since he's the Lord of spiritual life, and nobody on earth even knows what that means, he has to use physical life, because that's what everybody knows. He's saying, I'm the Lord of spiritual life. Let me prove it. I will raise this physically dead man from his death. If he can prove one, he is implying the other. I pulled this from Matthew chapter 9. 
They lowered a man on a bed through the roof because Jesus was so hard to get to. And they were forcing Jesus to deal with their friend. And he then says, he just said, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the scribes were in the room going, who is this who's saying that he can forgive sins? And this is what he says in verse 5. For what it, whether is it easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then he says to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he stands up and walks through the crowd with his bed. Jesus is saying, I can forgive sins, but you don't know what that means. You've never seen anyone that can forgive sins. You don't even know, you have no comprehension of that. But I am the one that can forgive sins, and I'll prove it to you. Get up. I will heal this man of his palsy, which none of you can understand either, but at least you can see it. And now he's going to shout into a tomb, come out, and the man will come out. And what he's really doing is saying, I can look into your tomb, and I can shout at you, and you can come out. I'm showing you physically what I am really about spiritually. If you remember John, the very first, one of the very first things he says in this gospel is that Jesus was life. Jesus was life itself, that in him was life, and that that life was the light of men. The fact that Jesus was life allowed men to see it, and he's doing it by showing it. And so this is, though though Thomas said, Let's go to Jerusalem to die with him. He was sure that they were going to catch him. They were sure because those people had rocks to kill him with the last time they were in town. And they knew, they knew that it was dangerous. And Jesus had to come because this appointment is really all about what Jesus is. Jesus is the Lord of life. And the Lord of life can give you life. But to show that he can give you life where you can't see life. You don't even know what life ever looked like, but you know what a beating heart is. And to prove it, he restored this man's heart. He restored this man's breathing. He was dead, decayed already, already putrefying, and Jesus pulled him back and brought him back to life. Jesus is, to accept Jesus is to accept life. The whole concept, this is John over and over and over again. He has bombasted us with this idea of life, the picture of life. To accept Jesus is to accept life. God said, I make a choice between you this day. Choose life. He even told you what to do. Choose him. And Jesus is life. To come to him is to go to life. If you reject Jesus, it's to reject life. Reject your own life. This is John 3.36. Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, and he said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Everlasting life. Life that you can't understand. You don't even have a comprehension of what everlasting means. It's not just enduring. It's the idea of eternal life. Eternal that is forever in both directions. What does that mean? You are on a different sphere than your brains that you experience, and I will give you everlasting life. He who believes on the Son has life, but he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him still. It's sitting on your head, the wrath of God abiding on you. You will never see life. 
That means that you have no life now unless Jesus were to give you life. Your heart is breathing, but yet you're dead. But Jesus can give you life, and he's showing this to the people who don't see dead people come out of the tomb. This is something different that they can't see. This is from the end of the the Bible. This is Revelation chapter 20. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there are two lives and there are two deaths. And you closing your eyes and going to, to your maker is not death. The second death is death. To be cast into the lake of fire with Satan and his angels is the second death. That's real death. Your death, your death is awful. Your death is painful. Your death is separating. Your death brings sadness and grief to people. But your death is only a picture of death. It is a shadow of death. That's what the way David expressed it. It's a shadow. It's not death. It's a picture of death. But it's the only thing we know. So we have to trust Jesus that if he's life, we don't know what life is, but I kind of know what life is, I'll trust him. And I don't know what death is, but I kind of know what death is, and I will trust Jesus because he's the Lord of life and he's the Lord of death. It said death and hell both were cast into the lake of fire. The greatest miracle was not that Jesus rose Lazarus from from the dead because Lazarus is going to die again. That's not the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is that he is restoring physical life as a picture of the spiritual life that he's really doing. The the Messiah came to give life. That is why he came. And he will give life to you the same as he gave life to Lazarus. It is not he's not bound in time. He is he that's his purpose and it's a picture. So let's look at this passage. Let's open it up. We're starting in verse 28. And when he had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly saying, The master has come and he calls for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Jesus wasn't coming to the town, but in that place where Martha met him, that the Jews which were with him in the house and comforted her said, as seeing that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying she goes to the grave to weep there. Jesus asked for Mary. Now we don't see that. We don't. We don't see it. We didn't see in the in the in the ver- verses that he's talking to Martha, and he goes, "Oh, go get Mary. I want to talk to her." But Martha immediately leaves and runs, and whispers to Mary, "The Master's here, and he's calling for you." And Mary instantly drops whatever she's doing, and she runs to Jesus, and falls at his feet. Did you notice that they said the same thing? Both of them said exactly the same thing. That makes me think, as I thought about it, why would they say the same thing? I think they talked about it. They talked about it. Where is Jesus? Where is he? If he were here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Both of them, that was sitting on their, on their brains. Both of, them, both of them asked each other that question. It was, they were not, it wasn't a nah in your face. It wasn't an accusation. They were puzzled. They were perplexed. And they had asked each other, what? If he was here, he could stop this. He could stop this. He is God's son. But it's funny that they had faith. Both of them had absolute faith, but it was limited faith. 
They understood that he would rise again on the last day. They understood what resurrection was, and they understood that Jesus was the one that was going to do it. That's amazing. That's one in a million. How many people here knew that Jesus was the Son of God? His disciples hadn't even come to that conclusion. But Mary and Mary and, and her sister knew it and talked together. And why didn't you come? He died because you weren't here. And Jesus is this. It's that same kind of, not exasperation, but almost pity. Why? What do you mean you woke me up because there's a storm? You think we're going to drown and I'm on the, in the boat with you and you think we're going to drown? And they're like, yeah. And he said, where's your faith? Like, almost like slapping them on the hand. Where's your faith? Do you think you are going to die if I'm with you? That, see, it takes, you, it takes faith. Faith is alive. Faith is a heartbeat. Faith is alive. If you've got faith, even any, you're alive. Do you have any faith at all? Do you have any faith that God can do what he said he can do and that he loves you? That's faith. It might be the tiniest, little, microscopic faith that you would need a microscope to see the heartbeat. But I promise it's the same as being alive. Alive is being alive. And he's saying, why don't you understand? And Martha said, I know that, that he'll come to life. And by the way, there's no word again there. The word is simply, he will rise. He will rise. He's dead and he will rise. And, and Martha's like, I know, I know because you're God. And he is saying, you have faith and it's alive and it's real. It's just limited. You haven't seen, you're not asking enough of me. You're not seeing who I am enough. If you think I can do a little bit, oh, God can help me out. God can get me to the end of the week. He can, he can help me with this little thing. No, he's so much bigger than that. That little bit of faith can grow into the lot of faith. He said it's like, it's like putting yeast in dough. You put a little bit of yeast and it, all of a sudden it fills the bowl. Because that's what faith does. Faith grows on itself. It grows on itself. And he said, he said he will rise. And Mary comes and falls at his feet. She, she just collapses in worship and in panic and in, in sorrow. And she knows that there's no one else to go to but him. And she said the same thing that was on their mind as they talked together. Where were you? He wouldn't have died if you were here. He wouldn't have died. So when, when, when you look at a limited faith, is it pitiful? No, it's just growing. It's just growing. It's not pitiful. Don't think of your faith as pitiful. And sometimes you put the dough in the refrigerator. I don't know. Please don't put your dough in the refrigerator. Don't do those things that will squish your faith. Yeah, it's growing, but it'll take a month of Sundays for it to fill the bowl. And you did that to yourself. Tastes better. God, God allows that sometimes, by the way. Oh, I need you to know that. Not every single thing that God sees is not intended to do good to you. Even when you deprive yourself of the, of the grace that God gives you, God is still working in that that he may make you hungrier and make you more willing. He loves Mary. He's not slapping her. How dare you not believe who I am? That is not. He loves her, and he is giving comfort to her. 
And so he doesn't scold her at all. There's no comment. You see nothing from Jesus. She just said the same thing that Martha said. And he doesn't scold her at all. He simply says, this is verse 33, he saw her weeping. He looked and he saw. When Hagar is sitting there with her son under the bush, knowing he's about to die, and she's like, I'm not going to come. I need to be over here. I can't watch him die. And he, she lifts up her eyes and she said, Thou, God, seest me. Hagar, the slave, the abused, the, the marginalized, the one used and then dropped. God looked at her and said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, what's up? And she said, Thou, God, seest me. You don't, God doesn't see you as though, hmm, wonder what this is going to be like. He sees you with the opportunity, with the whole intention of doing something about what he's seeing. And so he said, he watches her weep, and it moves him with compassion. He's compassionate. He's feeling the same pain that she's feeling. She, he, he lends his heart to her to take his, her pain in with him. And she, she, he's feeling it the same. And all these other people weeping, they're all, he looks at it, and he groans in the spirit. Be careful of that phrase. He's not groaning in the Holy Spirit. He's groaning inside himself. And the word is an anger word. The word groaning in yourself is this idea of like, this is, this is groaning. This. The four other times it's used in the gospel is when he's looking at the, the he's looking at the demons and he says, do not tell anybody that I'm the, the Christ. It's that feeling of, Ur. that's what he felt. He had this in his heart. That's what he felt when he groaned within himself. There is something that he doesn't like here. There's something he's standing in a graveyard and it opposes everything that God is. God doesn't stand in graveyards. And he, he, he felt it. He, he groaned. And it said he was troubled. That same word that was used when the water was troubled and stirred and bubbled. He stirred and he bubbled. He, he was like, ah, Inside God. He looked at that lady. She was broken. And she, he was like, ah. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Come and see. And Jesus walks up and he weeps. Shortest verse in the Bible, boys, if you want to memorize something for $5. Somebody, somebody offered me when I was a teenager, I think I was 12, you memorize something and I'll give you $5 or whatever it was. But I didn't know enough about the Bible. I'm like, where do I look? And I was suddenly, I was like in Psalm 119 and it was, you know, 75 words in a verse. And I'm like, oh, I'll never have $5. I'm like, I should have looked here. Jesus wept. What an important word. What an important sentence. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean that he wept? And why would he weep? And why would he be angry? And why is he weeping with anger? And what does angry weeping look like? What is it that he was, was feeling? What was he mad about? What was he in a, he was in a graveyard. He was mad at death. He was mad at death. Death against him. 
He's the Lord of life. Everything about God is that it would endure to his praise and that he would enjoy, that he would be with his people and his people would be with him. And there's no separation. It has come near. The gospel is about reconciliation. It's about don't go away, come to me. Don't run off. Don't hide behind something and hide behind a fig leaf. You come to me. If you're afraid, come to me. If I have doomed you with death, you come to me. That's what God does. God wants connection. He wants life. He does not want death. And Jesus is sitting in a graveyard, and people that he loves are in the tomb, and the people are devastated, and Jesus cares. He cares. This is Romans 5. This is verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and by death, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. There's, that sin has a consequence. That sin is not undangerous. It's the most dangerous thing in the world. It will end you. Your sins are not something you manage. It's not a managed thing. It destroys you. It kills you. The addictions are not something socially acceptable. It is something that will devastate you forever. And it it will separate you. It separates your, your usefulness. It, something dies. The wages of sins are death. Something dies every time that you sin against God because what you're doing is you're separating God's life from you. That's what sin does. James 1 says, When the lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. It, there's, a, there's a trajectory to it. I will separate myself from God so that I can have what God won't give me. So you put your own back towards God and you build it and you pet it and you feed it. And what happens, if that lust was conceived, you now have sin. You have, you have angered holiness. You have offended God. And there is a separation so that God doesn't even see you. And you did that. And when it has its effect, you will have separation forever. Sin, when it's full and finished, there's something that eternally dies. And Jesus is not about that. He's standing in that graveyard and he is weeping. He is not frustrated. He's not frustrated like I weep. I weep with frustration. Oh, I want her back. Oh, I can't have her. I, what am I going to do? I've never been alone. I've never, that's frustration. That's not weeping like Jesus wept. Jesus has no frustration. He knew exactly what he was going to do and knew it was going to happen. He is weeping in a different way. He is sympathizing with us. He's empathizing with us. He's, he's compassionate with us. He is, he's weeping for the same reason that he's mad. Do you see it? There is a, there is a weep that comes from that feeling that I want more than these people want. This is from Luke chapter 19. And when he had come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even thou, at, least, at last in this day, the things which belong to thy peace, but now they're hid from thy eyes. For the days shall come upon thee when your enemies will cast a trench around thee and come pursue thee around and keep thee on every side. And shall say, lay thee on, uh, even with the ground, and thy children with thee, and they shall not leave one stone upon another, 
because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus was looking at Jerusalem and weeping in the same troubled spirit because that's not my intention. My intention to my people is that my people would be with me and I would be their God and they would be my people forever. That's what God intends. And God gets his way. Jesus is not frustrated. <clears throat> Lord, if God did not send Jesus in an act of frustration. He intended to do us good by Jesus Christ because we're sinners. He didn't look at our sin and say, what am I going to do? Mm, it's Jesus. No. It is because of Jesus that we will be restored to, to God. We have to go through our sin in order to get to, to a Savior. And though it hurts us, and though it pains God's heart to see your life ruined, it does not matter. If you trust the Lord, you will go to glory. And all that you suffer will not mean a thing compared to what you will have. There's no comparison. There's none at all. This is back to John, verse 36. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved them. And some of them said, Could this man which opened the eyes of the blonde not have caused even this man to not have died? They see, they misinterpreted him. They looked at his tears and saw compassion. And they looked at his, they looked at his tears and saw frustration. Oh, they're like, oh, he loved him and he's dead. Oh, he loved him so much. He, Jesus is such a nice person. They, un, they don't understand. They don't understand. Jesus is a nice person, but they don't understand. Jesus is boiling about something higher than all these people. And there is a war going on higher than all the heads of these people that are weeping in the graveyard. Something is going on big. This is 1 Corinthians 15. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. He shall reign until even death be done with. It's the last enemy. Now, Jesus is raising Lazarus because Jesus is going to die for Lazarus. That's why Jesus is going to raise Lazarus. If Jesus did not die for Lazarus, it would have been a mockery to raise him from the dead so that he could continue as a sinner, so that he could go to hell forever. That would be mocking him. Don't help me. If all you're going to do is mock me, mock my pain, mock my frailty, Jesus came to help us not to mock us. And he raised him knowing that he was going to go to hell for him. That's why. There is, there is, a, there is a reigning, Jesus is reigning until all enemies be put under his feet. And the last enemy is death. Back to John, this is 38. Jesus therefore, again groaning in himself, came to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, take the stone away. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said, Lord, by this time he stinketh. I love King James. For he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not to thee that if you would believe you should see the glory of God? Now, Jesus did smack her. Okay? Because Jesus did a teaching with her that he didn't do with Mary. And she was like ten minutes ago and she was like, Huh, I just taught you this. You trust me. I'm the resurrection and the life. Oh, he's stinking. Do you understand? Martha's the one who's always in the kitchen trying to make everybody happy. She's like, 
She doesn't want Jesus to be offended by her brother's smell. Do you understand? It's a, it, there's, a, there's a nice lady quality to that. And Jesus is like, wake up. There's something way bigger than what you're thinking here. Did I not say that if you believed you would see God's glory, something about to happen that will shake your world? So, this is 41. Then they took the stone away from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know you always hear me. But because of the people that stand by, I said it, that they may believe you have sent it. There's three public prayers like this in in John. This is the first one. Jesus prays to God publicly so that everybody can hear what he said, so that what will then happen next will be attributed to the prayer that Jesus prayed. It's so that the people can have faith. Jesus is not there as judge. He said, I did not come to judge the world. I came to to not condemn it, but that the world might be saved. He said, God, do something. Father, I know you can hear me. And then when something happens, the people have to connect that, that God did something as a result of Jesus' relationship with him, that God sent Jesus. That's what he wanted them to know. This is John 11, 43. When thus he had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and feet with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. And Jesus said unto them, Loose him and let him go. Do you remember in John 5 when he said, Don't, be, don't marvel at this. There will be a time when the Son of Man will speak into the graves and all the, gra- all the people in their graves will come out. Summoned to damnation and summoned to everlasting bliss. Don't think this is because I am God and God has given me the authority to have myself, life in myself, and anyone that I choose to give to, to them. That's what he said. Now, I wrote down a famous line of Augustine. Augustine is one of my very favorites. He was really, really long ago, for like the 400s. But Augustine, my goodness, some of the... You wouldn't think that he was fussy at all. Everything he says is just easy to understand, easy to think. I love him. He just said, it's a good thing he said Lazarus. Isn't that funny? It's a good thing he said Lazarus because Jesus is standing in a graveyard and he said, come forth, everybody in the graveyard come out. And I'm just like, wow, if he didn't say Lazarus, everybody on earth would come out. Because there will be a time when they hear the voice of the Son of Man and they will raise because God gave him the power to be over this universe. He is, Ephesians says he raises up to where he fills the universe completely. Jesus Christ is it. He's not someone that we know. This is God, and we don't know what that means. We don't know what big means. We don't know what powerful means. We don't know what loving means. We don't know what compassionate means. But we just look again and again and again and again to Jesus as he's displayed here. And we see God. This is what God feels like. God, who said, come to me because I'm lowly. I'm lowly. And you will have rest for your souls. I'm gentle. I'm lowly. That's your Jesus. Jesus of infinite, infinite power and control. Lowly and approachable. This is Ephesians chapter 2. And you, who he hath quickened, 
who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom we also had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I, I just think it's amazing. I just think it's amazing. And this, other, and this verse too, as big as that is, this is the Lazarus come forth verse. This is as big as it gets. But do you realize that all of this together, he's, got, he's, got, he's involving the people that are around him? There's no power like Lazarus come forth. That's showing sovereignty completely. And he said, move the stone. Move the stone. And so the people move the stone. And I'm thinking, I was, I was thinking this yesterday, I was like, Jesus could have just gone, whoa. But he didn't come to do parlor tricks. He didn't come so that people would squeal and go, ooh, do another one. He's doing something bigger than people even understand. And he said, you move the stone. That's something you can do. Come on, Larry, come on, three of, three of you. And they push the stone away. And then Lazarus comes out. Now, this caught my attention, too. He's bound hand and foot. Did you see it? He's bound hand and foot. How did he come out? God raised him from the dead. You don't participate in that. He raised him from the dead and he came out of that cave and he was at the front of the cave, totally tied in knots. They, they cover him over like a sandwich and then they tie him like a full mummy. It's not the mummy from the movies with his legs wrapped separately. He's all in a, he's in a, a burrito and he's absolutely standing there and God did that. Then the next command is to the people. Untie him. By the way, that's what the church is to do. Our job is to untie each other. We tied ourselves up. It's our fault? Absolutely. I deserve hell. My fault. God does his saving power. He resurrects people. He raises them from the dead. Now he runs to the others who have already been raised from the dead and goes, okay, now I want you to work in their life for the next 45 years. And it's going to take your whole life. I want you to untie him. And every time that you come to each other and you're like, honey, you got, some, you got some bandage. Let me help you with that bandage. And be sure to look at your own bandages before you start pecking around in other people's eyes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay? But it's our job to do it to each other. God involved us so that we can have a participation in it. Have you ever involved a child in something that you know you could do better at? Yes, it's called love. That's love. And it binds you together. It binds you together. A kid would rather make a cookie and, than eat a cookie, as long as you're there with them. And so would you. I would, rather, I would rather do something in this world. We don't want an Internet church. Thank you for watching. We don't want an Internet church. We want to be together. We want to minister together. That's what we want. That's what we want. 
45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary saw what Jesus had done and, uh, and, and, and believed on him. Nah. But some went their way to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. That's easy to comment on. There's always two responses to Jesus. That's easy. There's always two. There's always going to be two. Okay? Jesus knew that there were people watching him. And so he prays to the Father, knowing that God always heard him, so that when he did it, it would put faith in the hearts of the people around. And those people were better miracle than Lazarus. No one misses Everybody misses that. The people standing around came to life forever. Lazarus came to life for 10 years. And all of those people looked and looked straight into the face of Jesus and came alive. Forever came alive. That's the resurrection. The resurrection were to the people that he prayed to that saw what happened and believed on him. That's the resurrection. That's the Lazarus come forth. And I wrote down, why did he correct? Why did he yell? Why did he yell? The, the word is boom. He boomed like in a kind of a movie. Lazarus. Big macho voice. Why? He could have whispered and Lazarus would have come out. What would, would Lazarus, where was Lazarus? Where was Lazarus? Lazarus was somewhere and he heard his master, he heard his maker calling into his tomb and wherever he was, he came back. He came pulled back. Jesus did that. And I don't have an answer. I just wrote, wrote it down. Why did he yell? That's, that's still a mystery to me. And then gathered the chief priests and Pharisees and, and what do we do? This man is doing many miracles. If we let him alone, all men will believe on him and the Romans will come and take away our, both our place and our nation. That's 48. So they had to pull the Sanhedrin into emergency session. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? The Romans were the game in town. And they needed to keep things status quo because they were the big boys. And they needed it to be the same. Whether the Rome was going to be there or not, I need to make sure that I've got my little part of the pie. And they were afraid it was going to mess it all up and that Jesus wasn't going to make people believe and the Romans would see it as an insurrection and that the devil who owns this world would be up to the set. Who cares, God thinks? Who cares if the devil is upset? He's about to upset things. God upsets your cart. That's what he does. This is verse 49. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said, you don't know anything at all. Do you not consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation don't perish? Perish not. And this he spake not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also gathered together all into one, all the children of God, which are scattered abroad. Do you see John? John just made a commentary. John the writer pulled himself into this and said, that's really interesting. When Aaron was high priest, it was for life. When all of his sons were high priest, it was till they died. And then their son became high priest, and it was till they died. But the Romans didn't like that because that's too much power. So they were like, they appointed people. You can be high priest until January. That way you couldn't accrue enough power for you to do something really dangerous. So here's Caiaphas who gets to live in a palace, by the way, it said, palace. Okay, this is where Jesus was tried in Caiaphas' palace, right? So I want to keep my palace. 
And the Romans, it's okay, because I've got, you know, it's a, so sorry everybody's not me, but I'm Caiaphas, at least for this year. And he wants to stay, and so he said, what does it matter? It doesn't really matter. The law doesn't matter when I want to get what I want to done. But John said, it's really interesting, he was the high priest of Israel, high priest. This is the job Jesus gets, by the way. It's the same as being king of Israel. Jesus has this job. And as high priest, he spoke prophetically and he said Jesus would die for the nation. And not just for that nation only, but all children of God would be brought together. His atonement would be substitutionary. It would be on top of it. And Jesus was a substitute. He substituted himself in Lazarus's grave. That's a substitute. Lazarus came out of the grave. Jesus went into the grave. That's why Lazarus was brought out. He's a substitute, and Caiaphas said he would die for the nation and die for anybody that was his people, that he would bring all people together. So if you continue in Ephesians in chapter 2, it says that the walls that broke down from the Gentiles outside and the Jews inside, all that's broken. Now we have one people, one fold, one, one flock, because all of that nonsense, is, that separation nonsense is gone because Jesus was a substitute for, for Lazarus. Lazarus came out and Jesus went in. This is 53. Then from that day they took counsel to put him to death. Jesus therefore no, walked no more openly among the Jews, but thence into a country in the wilderness called Ephraim, about 15 miles away, and he continued with his disciples. Now the music starts to build because this is the end of the season finale. Have you ever been watching Netflix for about 10 years? And you get to the end of the season and everything, all the threads come together and you know what's going to happen and then it stops. And then you have to wait for the next year to come before you know what's going to happen. So what does it say? It says in 55, and the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. And many was out in the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they sought for Jesus and they spake among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? Will he not come to the feast? Do you see this is like a cliffhanger. What do you think? Is he going to come to the feast? The Jews' Passover was at hand. Now, this is John 11. John goes to chapter 20. Right? Chapter 20. He's going to die in 19. What's happening between now and then? The Jews' Passover is where he dies. And there are already people coming into town. So we're, what happens is that John slows down. For the next chapters, Jesus is pouring his, his heart in one night to his disciples. He is giving them everything. He is telling them what's going to happen. He is, he is teaching them about all things. And we are going to now enter the very mind of Jesus Christ as the pours out his heart. And in the meantime, the people are already in the streets going, what do you think? Is he going to come? Isn't that awesome? John's good. Amen.